This is the sole survivor of a large family. Damn it, you literally stole my Wait, idea. really? Yeah. <laughs> sole survivor of a village or a family or whatever. <laughs> You're haunted and don't want to be alone. Okay, wait, okay, you do that one. I, I can get another one. I get another one. Live from the Mundangerous Dry Run in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 125 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're discussing ways to encourage overly cautious players to take a few risks and live a little less. But first, the rogue traders discover more words than they can bear in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, safety in numbers always stands in formation in the Character Creation Forge. So, not too long ago, Fantasy Flight's new system, Genesis, came out, which is, what does it stand for? Generic system? Generic system, yeah, I think so. And new, new-ish. <laughs> Uh, it is the genericized version of Edge of the Empire, uh, based on that narrative dice system, designed to be adaptable for a variety of settings and tones. So the reason we bring it up is we're going to get a copy. And when we have that copy, we're going to read that copy. And then we're going to review that copy for you. Right. Cover to cover. It's a big book. It is a big book. Okay. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we already know a lot of it, because we know Edge of the Empire, so... That we'll know the core mechanics of the book. It's more just finding the trappings and, and sort of the new, uh, what what got in and what got out. Right. Uh, we don't know exactly when that review is going to come out yet because we don't know how long it's going to take us to dig through the entire book. Uh, Shane, have you seen that people are all, are already working on uh, 40K version yes. of it? Yeah. There is a very robust Dark Heresy 2nd Edition uh, conversion to Genesis that is already circulating. But yeah, I mean, that is definitely a candidate to replace Dark Heresy uh, for Rogue Trader. We might migrate systems at some point. All right, so speaking of replacing Dark Heresy with Rogue Trader, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the Rogue Traders of the His Enduring Light are in the primary chapel of the Chartist vessel Ambition, and things have really gone downhill in a hurry. The rogue traders of the His Enduring Light are f***ed. <laughs> so your entire approach to the chapel was littered with a trail of blood and various chaos runes that made your armsmen physically ill, and now the chapel itself has been grossly profaned by chaos rituals, and now in the inner sanctum, you face three word-bearer chaos space marines. Three! Three! Who appear to be carrying away some form of holy imperial reliquary, uh, as it is the only object in the room that hasn't been defaced, smeared in blood, or carved in chaos runes. <sighs> so... What do they do besides laugh at us? Well, their leader does laugh at you. He is a eight-foot-tall, gore-spattered, crimson and silver power-armored superhuman space marine. And he laughs at you for interrupting um, in a voice so loud that it hurts your minds. Uh, then he promises to commemorate your bravery by making you all corpses to be venerated by foolish Imperials, just as they venerate their corpse god the emperor oh his voice is punching my brain so this is one of those very very rare times where uh ishan me as a player said oh god no 
but my character was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to run in and shoot some people. (laughs) (laughs) Time for revenge. (laughs) So, yes, there was a firefight. It was it was a great fight. I was one impressed with the system and the way that it handled this. Um, And and you had good timing on this as a GM. Yeah, so uh, I so we played this on a battle map, which is not how we always play. But uh, I had drawn out on the battle map a large, like, inner sanctum transept of a of a imperial cathedral. Uh, it was giant sized. You know, there were rows and rows and rows and rows of uh, pews. There were mm-hmm. large column pillars that were sort of holding up this Gothic cathedral. Um, there's a large altar at the front. Big Aquila on the ground. Yeah, I drew, uh, hand drew a large Imperial <laughs> Aquila and posted pictures of it on uh, on Twitter because I was super excited that I got it. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I placed three actual Space Marine miniatures on the board <laughs> and was like, all right, let's do this. Let's fight. Except that the fight didn't start the way you thought it would, did it? Uh, no, we shot at them and then it bounced off their armor. And they, they mostly just ignored that you were even there. Uh-huh. Uh, at, at the points where you did actually manage to hurt them, uh, they just kind of laughed at each other for getting for the pain. Like they would howl in pain, and then they would howl in laughter, uh, as though these, you know, petty humans would think that they could even slow them down. Yeah, these guys are cray cray. So, Trank's job on the ship is uh, to be in charge of ship security but his job in the party is to murder people with a gun <laughs> because because his his build is assassin so uh eventually with my lovely beautiful pulse rifle your recruit pulse rifle your super <laughs> heretical recruit pulse rifle um hat tip to the all guardsman party for tipping me off to pulse weapons finally actually shoot a dude in uh the leg i in, believe it was in the leg yeah yep. Uh, uh, bad enough that he actually can't use it anymore and can no longer carry the reliquary. Right. Which means that they can no longer just walk out with the reliquary. They're going to have to deal with the persistent threat in the room because, well, you've angered them. <laughs> and that's not good. So they're Marines. They carry bolters. Um, and they're also very well drilled and tactically trained. So they break formation uh, and turn their bolters on you. And this is when the the room fills with a hail of bullets, right? Uh, their suppressing fire is destructive, to say the least. Their suppressing fire is, is bolter fire, which is mini rocket-propelled grenades. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you guys are cowering basically in the back row behind pillars. Yeah, and, behind giant pillars, and, fortunately. And like marble pews, and, and they are just like raking the entire room with bolter rounds. Uh, destroying the pews, sort of chipping away at your cover. It's it's sort of like, you know, you have to keep moving or else the spot where you just were disintegrates in a hail of chipped marble. It was like that scene from The Matrix. Yeah. When they, when they the break into scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and in, the, in the course of this, right, you're, you're way outgunned, but you do manage to focus fire and actually wound each of them um, to, to the point where like 
they're they're fully dug in right they're they're no longer taking this as a joke they are now executing like marine tactics with marine efficiency yeah i think they were expecting las fire right <laughs> and, and they got <laughs> much more than weapons, fire. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a glaive <laughs> uh and and this is a back and forth thing right you guys are getting getting winged and you're you're managing to hit put a few wounds on each of them uh until trank takes one. Oh yeah in the gut unpleasant uh, which sends Doc running from the opposite side of the room across lanes of fire <laughs> to try and stabilize you because we need that pulse rifle. <laughs> this is this was a moment for Trank and Doc because it was the first time Trank was like, oh, we probably shouldn't just burn this. We probably should just burn this heretic. Right. And it was, wait a minute, you can take me from literally about to die to basically on my feet again, feeling pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> with one, like one shot. Right. I don't want to know what's in that shot. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but this does present a problem because before you were spread out, so you had a bit of an advantage and you could kind of take pot shots. But now you and Zarkov and Doc are all pinned in one corner mm-hmm. and only Draco, the other arch militant of the crew, is in the other side and he senses an opening. So he suspects that you won't win a war of attrition because if you get hit, it's just too brutal. So he's going to make a move up the flank, try and get around them, and hit them from the side as they're still focused on your corner as they're raining down bolter shells uh, around you. Yeah, I think he's got double double bolters in hand at this point. Two bolt pistols, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he draws out one of the marines, and they basically take aim at each other, and Draco delivers a headshot. Uh, which sets off his ammo. <laughs> <laughs> because bolt rounds are explosive <laughs> so the the ensuing concussion uh knocks draco flat uh and unconscious fortunately not dead right but it kills a marine which is that's the first time that's happened insane <laughs> the rest of us sees the opening because you know the other two marines are like wait what right and, and they're also down one bolter in their suppressive fire. Uh, and so we're able to gun down the other wounded Marine, the essentially the not captain. Right. Uh, and the captain, um, you know, proud as uh, Chaos Marines might be, is also a pragmatist. And uh, he sees that the tides have turned, leaps down from the chapel, uh, grabs Draco's body to wield as a shield for himself, and takes cover behind a brazier that's casting this sickly glow in the room. Well, that sucks. And then once again, the once sacred halls of this imperial chapel fill with a bellowing laughter. And we'll find out what bad thing happens next, next week. So, in contrast to this week's Dynasty and Wards recap. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> uh, today's topic comes from... Uh, listener Sarah, who says she is a first-time DM playing with three first-time players, and they are overly cautious. So she writes, One and sometimes two of my players are very cautious, reserved with resources, and a bit completist with settings. It makes gameplay slow and frustrating sometimes, but everyone is nice and polite, so they go along with it. I'm not sure what to do as the DM, because I don't want to shut them down or be too obvious with the story. My objectives are already very clear, and they will acknowledge them, but want to rule out all other possible options and risks before moving forward. 
I know that new players tend to be slower in general, but we've been playing for a while and have seen little to no change. It makes it hard for me to flesh out settings, and I hesitate to incorporate any tricks or traps or red herrings in case it would make them even more skeptical. How can I pick up the pace without removing my player's agency or significantly limiting my settings? Uh, then she gave us an example of her rogue player uh, making four perception checks just to approach, open, and uh, enter a non-threatening locked door. Sounds like they were used to Tomb of Horrors. Right, yeah. I will say this is uh, Sarah's second question via email, which means just two more and her fifth one's free. Oh, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where she should get the punch card soon. Right. Uh, so these are these are all great questions. Because we've definitely had this kind of problem in our group as well. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember actually when I first started in this group early on, we were playing 4th edition. Um, and there was one session when I left it and I was just like, that, I did not like that session at all because I didn't, I didn't do anything because we didn't do anything. Right. Because all that happened for four hours was people going back and forth about like, do we have enough contingency plans? I don't really know. What if we try this? But wait, wait, what if we did this instead? Maybe that would be safer. Mm-hmm. And we also, I mean, we just have this problem where we have the right answer in hand. The GM wants us to move forward and advance the story. And then someone wants to double back and finish the investigation just to rule out all the loose ends to confirm that we have the right answer in hand. That's you. It's often me. It's not always me, but it's often me. I mean, we are almost all the type of people who, when playing a video game, are like, well, okay, but now I need to, I need to finish the map. Oh, no, I'm paralyzed by open world video games. <laughs> like, I, I love every open world game until I get to the open world. And I'm like, cool, the story could go anywhere. And I have too many choices. So I'm going to do something else now. I always um, would get a bunch of bookmarks when I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure books. <laughs> so you could, you could <laughs> I was like, save. no, that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I'd be pissed when it was like, wait a minute, both those choices went to the same place. Yeah, exactly. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, we've also touched uh, around the edges of this question in a few previous episodes. So uh, number 64 on narrative control, number 68 when we talked about scale of actions in RPGs, uh, and then even last week's episode, number 124, uh, collaborative storytelling, talked a little bit about this as well. But for dealing specifically with Sarah's questions, um, we've got a few rules of thumb, three, in fact, for uh, RPGs that sort of play out like D&D. First is, don't allow the same check multiple times in a scene. Second, don't play 21 questions. 21 questions. 20 questions? 21 questions. 20 questions. The name of the song is 21 questions. Oh, I thought you were talking about the game, 20 questions. Do you mean literally don't play a song? Like, don't don't put this on as your soundtrack? Wait a minute. Is the game called 20 questions? The game is called 20 questions. I'm, I, think, I'm I thinking of a thing. I just 21 questions and I got 21 questions game. Is 20 questions a game? 20 questions is the game. Should we just leave this on? Yeah, we, de- we definitely should. <laughs> Are we leaving this in? Oh, we here. 200 questions to get to know someone. Yeah, I'm just saying the 21 <laughs> questions game is the first hit when you search 21 questions. <laughs> yeah, it's 20 questions. All right. Okay. So revise that. The rule is don't play 20 questions. But don't play 21 questions either. Right. <laughs> So don't allow the same check multiple times in a scene. Don't play 20 or 21 questions. And then third, don't punish the players for not having information from questions they didn't get allowed to ask. There we go. 
thought you were going to say just don't punish the players. And I was going to be like, well, I mean, sometimes punish the players. <laughs> but just when they deserve it. All right. Let's dig into these in more detail. So first, don't allow the same check multiple times in a scene. Okay. So the rogue wants to roll perception for the approach to the door and then checking the door and then the entryway of the door. Um, don't let them do that. No. You make one perception check for the scene. So the scene is getting through the door. Great. Roll perception. That's how alert you are in this in this situation. Mm-hmm. Go forth and conquer. And then when you describe it, you describe it at different phases of the uh, approach. You describe it as with your 15 perception that you rolled, you see no threats. Right? You're not saying what is there, what isn't there. You're just saying there's no threats. Period. Yeah, you probably already do this with different kinds of checks, like a history check. You know, they want to recall a bit of lore. If they don't know something, they then aren't allowed to be like, well, I'm just going to roll it again. Right. right. I'm going to wait an hour and then see if I know it now. Right. You know, it, it doesn't happen that way. But what happens sometimes is they're like, okay, I got a 22 history. You give them some lore. And then they're like, uh, but what about this other thing? Instead of making them roll again, you just say, well, with your 22, you also know this, this, and this. Right. And likewise, if it was perception to find traps, right? Okay, I roll perception. And then it was like, okay, but now I want to listen to the door to see if there's anything on the other side. All right, well, it's the same perception. Yeah, you like, already did that. That's what you were doing that while you were right. doing that. Your perception was finding threats, not finding individual threats that you have named exhaustively. Yeah, which keep in mind, if they're like, okay, I'm checking for traps, they do a perception, they roll a 15... If even if there aren't any traps, you can be like, there aren't any traps. Or, you know, you don't find them. Maybe it, it's more difficult than that. But with that 15, you hear this, even though you weren't necessarily saying, I'm trying to listen for things. Right. Um, and this is a, th- this can be difficult for new GMs, especially if you're looking in published adventures, because a lot of times things are listed sort of chronologically with their, with the difficulty to, you know, recognize the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that implies that you would make multiple rolls, right? In reality, just roll once and whatever they recognize is based on what that one roll was. So if they make the 13 threshold, they hear the bugbear. But if they make the 20 threshold, they hear the cloaked horror that's on the ceiling. This can also get into a confusing situation for new players when they have uh, out of game knowledge that their character wouldn't. So, for example, let's say they make that perception check, they roll a four. They know they did really poorly. And there's probably things that they didn't hear or notice. But the character doesn't know that. The character doesn't know that they rolled a four right. or that they like heard poorly. Right? It's just something else happened. So you just need to, you know, push them through and say, well, it's that same perception check, you know, you were distracted by this other thing or you know, you you weren't able to notice this thing or while you were searching, you didn't hear this other thing. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, you are confident that there's nothing here. And sometimes that kind of dramatic irony is fun. You know, you are 100% sure that you are not being lied to. Right. Even though the player knows they just rolled a two on their insight check. Yep. And I, and I think either the the two reactions from cautious players there when they know they've rolled poorly is to try and wait until they can try again or to try and um like you said add clarifications that will trigger a re-roll right so oh i i got history on that thing but what about this other thing that's slightly different and adjacent that might get me more information that i need you have to recognize this as the gm and just say no you have all the information that you can get um there's no other way around this, right? Um, 
And likewise, you have to make sure that you convey to the players that time won't change the result, right? Um, leave it vague enough. It's not that you did poorly listening. It's not that you tripped over your own feet and were too distracted to listen. It's that this is a very hard door to listen through. Like, you're just unlucky this time. So next up, don't play 20 questions. So when you're narrating the scene, you've given them much of the relevant information that they need in order to understand what's going on. And of course, they're asking questions, you know, but at a certain point, you need to uh, brush aside additional questions and say, you already know that, or there isn't any more information to be gathered here. Yeah, it's it's okay to like clarify things that they don't understand so that they're they're getting the information correctly. Um, and it's okay to add descriptive details to make the world more rich, right? Like, oh yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, the, the artwork on the tapestry is, is beautiful. It's from a period from about 400 years ago. And uh, it, it looks like it was probably um, from half-elf craftsmen from this, uh, this city. Great, that makes your world more rich, but it is not going to change anything about what's going on in this uh, castle. Right, and it's probably not the information that cautious players are like desperately looking for exactly you know but it does mean you get to inject just a little more of that world building right which which is fine you want to do that right it's not a it's not just a mechanical process but you also want to recognize when your players are trying to bargain for more information and just tell them straight up there is no information you know that already Mm -hmm. or you don't know that or you can't know that right (laughs) there's no way for you to know that move on this happens sometimes when you get players who, for some reason, are asking for, like, minutiae of the environment. And sometimes that is because they're trying to find some, like, hook or or thing they can use for leverage right. in order to, you know, benefit themselves. But, you know, things like, oh, what kind of wood is the door frame made out of? Uh, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't need to make up a thing because, like, you don't know. Right. And, like, even if you roll a, a 20 on your nature check, well... You are unable to identify it. Right. You know, it's not an important detail. And, and when you have players that are looking for those minute details to gain advantages, you can you can point that out to them, right? Like, what is it that you're looking for and why, right? Because that way the, the, char- the player has to declare their intentions behind this. And if there is no good intention, you move on. If there is and it's something that they're, they're overlooking or, or that you've overlooked that might be an important detail, then yeah, sure. Like give them the information that they were looking for. Um, but you know, you, you need to ascertain what they're trying to get out of playing this questioning game. Yeah. And if you've determined that something that they're looking for is, is a good intention and it's something that they haven't thought of, or they haven't thought of using this other particular skill, you can then volunteer that. To right. Them. Be like, well, actually, if you make a history check, you might be able to figure that out. Right. Right. And then rule number three, and the most important one, the only way that these first two rules work at all, actually, is don't punish players for questions that you didn't let them ask. Uh, the cloaked horror drops on you from the ceiling and murders your face. Well, that's okay, because you got to make the perception check. Uh, but you didn't say that you look up. <laughs> well, that's a problem. <laughs> you only percepted <laughs> down the hallway, not up the hallway. Did you say you turn around and look behind you? You didn't. You're right. dead. <laughs> you guys didn't set a rear guard, idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows. <laughs> uh, you you can't do that gotcha thing because the only way that the first two rules work is if you develop trust with the players. Um, they trust that you're 
on the level with them and they'll buy in. And if they suspect that you're just trying to trick them, you're going to slow your game to a crawl even more than it is already. This doesn't mean, of course, that bad things can't happen to players or even their characters. <laughs> <laughs> so they can happen because they made a bad roll, right? They may have done poorly on that perception check and didn't notice the cloaked horror. Right. They may have rolled poorly on the dexterity saving throw to avoid it. Right. Or they could have made a bad decision and, you know, ran into a dark room. Yeah, or, or you know, like we knew that there were orcs uh, guarding this fortress. Like we tried to sneak in. It didn't go well. That's okay. <laughs> like, like it's okay if you chose the wrong plan when there was a better one available for the right reasons or even sometimes the wrong reasons. You, you just spent too long uh, investigating the door jam and now the sentries are here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I, I think what's important is that you can't have bad things happen to the player because they didn't ask you for the key information they needed to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't trick them by saying, uh, okay, you, you, you research the fortress and you know that it's an old elven uh, camp. But then you didn't ask me what's currently living there. So, of course, you didn't know that there were orcs that had taken up camp there and you came in unequipped and undermanned. Like, okay, but we we looked for information about it. That's pretty important information. That's part of what we looked for. You're kind of just screwing us. Now, if no one knew that orcs were inside, it's reasonable. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, in her question, Sarah mentioned using deception and red herrings. And this is definitely one of the tricky parts. And it's it's not just tricky for people who are dealing with cautious players. It, it's tricky all the time because players are, by their very nature, skeptical. And paranoid. Yes, which they should be. Because those dirty GMs are coming for their character sheets. Also true. So you're going to want to use them sparingly. And this is a thing I ran into in the Morning Glory campaign sometimes is I would have a red herring planned. Um, and then in the course of investigation, I would see that the party is getting on the wrong track and I'd be like, ah, crap. I mean, I can, I can try to end this quickly somehow to get them back on the right track because no one, they and I don't want us spending two sessions on something that doesn't lead anywhere. Right. Right. So I can either, I don't have someone step in and like explain things to them or I don't know. I might just make the red herring the real thing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, and and what this comes down to is if your players really can't trust anything or anyone, they're right to be cautious. Like, if the world is actually trying to kill them, they should be paranoid about it. And if the GM is trying to kill their characters, they should be fighting back as much as they can. Yeah, if you think about the kind of game where players are really supposed to be afraid of everything. It's called it's, Paranoia. Yeah, and Call of Cthulhu. Well, yeah. Call of Cthulhu is about the the descent right well th- yeah, that's what i mean the end result of that kind of game is you lose yeah, yeah you know and and you have to go in knowing okay we're gonna lose and and that's kind of the goal right here. yeah but if you're playing a heroic game like D, no one wants to go in being like oh well yep the party's definitely gonna die right all because our rogue forgot to ask about uh whether there was a pressure plate in the floor idiot when honestly, they should just be summoning creatures to send them down the hallway and check all. <laughs> Bag of rats. Yeah, come on. Uh, 15-foot pole. <laughs> Safer than a 10-foot pole. Uh, and then I think the other part of this is when the players are planning and 
you know, obviously when their characters are planning. As a GM, you want to remind them of the details they should know and should be accounting for, but might be overlooking. Yeah, you're not trying to steer them directly into, you know, whatever you think the right choice is, but you want to make sure that they fully understand uh, the risks that their characters would be privy to. So, you know, when we were planning the um, Pit of Five Sorrows heist, it was essentially two hours of you guys sitting around and figuring out how you're going to get into this thing. And then looking at me and being like, wait, what about this? Um, okay, what about this? And then me volunteering, okay, but also keep in mind you're forgetting about this. Or you know, what about the find the path spell, you know? Yeah, yeah. Things that y- your characters who are competent adventurers would think of, but that <laughs> players who have nine to five day jobs probably wouldn't. And also who are being aided by super powerful and smart dragons. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they send you a book, they put it down, they sigh, and they walk away. Right. <laughs> um, and, and this is like, this is also a little bit of like just CYA as the GM to make sure your players don't think you've tricked them when you genuinely aren't trying to. Right. So like if they have two paths, like let's say they can go over the mountains or they can go around through the desert, like, you know, they might immediately recognize, oh, there's giants in the mountains. We can't fight giants. So we have to go through the desert. And and that's a valid choice. Right. And maybe that's even the right choice. But if you don't remind them that the desert has, you know, crushing heat, um, bitter exhaustion and roving bands of cannibal orcs, and then they run into those things and start dying, they're going to feel like, wait a minute, no, you screwed us. You didn't warn us about this stuff in the desert. Like, we should have known so that we were prepared for it. Uh, look, you had me at cannibal orcs. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we're going to the desert. <laughs> I don't care about giants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and those aren't necessarily things you need to come out, come right out and say, well, keep in mind, cannibal orcs and, and crushing heat. These are things that as they're buying, you know, ropes and water for the desert – People at the supply store are like, oh, where are you off to? Yeah. Oh, the desert. How are you going to deal with the orcs? (laughs) (laughs) Have you thought about exhaustion? (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen a refund policy? (laughs) We also have spells of giant slaying. (laughs) Have you considered teleporting? (laughs) (laughs) Have you considered farming? (laughs) It's really lucrative. (laughs) Look, hear me out. Get to druid level five. And then plant growth all day, every day. Right. <laughs> I have huge pumpkins. It's really fulfilling. All right. So what are some other approaches for um, urging your players forward, even if they're digging in their heels? Yeah. And these, these approaches aren't quite as tied to the D&D structure of, you know, skills and difficulties and those types of things. So I think... an easy though sometimes heavy-handed approach is to simply narrate them forward so the rogue says that they're going to approach the door uh you know and they're and you say okay great so make the stealth check make the perception check and then narrate them to the next interesting decision that they have to make so instead of saying you know okay i creep up and i'll listen at the door and i'll check for traps and i'll do this and i'll do that and then i'll open the door slowly and then i'll creep my head in and i'll listen for uh you know anything coming down the hallway and i'll check for traps again and i'm not sure and what the to fighter do. is going to stand over here and do nothing exactly you say cool you approach the door alert and stealthy it opens silently and reveals an empty hallway you creep quietly 40 feet to the down the hallway until you reach another door and you hear voices on the other side 
what do you do? Right? You just you took all that minutia and said, you're competent. Here you go. Yeah. As a player, I really appreciate that, especially when you have a limited amount of, a limited amount of time. I mean, if you think about old modules, especially. Two it's like, <laughs> And not just two horrors, but really anything. It's like, oh, there's a labyrinth. Of course, there's a stupid labyrinth. Yeah. And it's not necessarily put together in a way that makes any sense, right? It's like, okay, you hit a T-junction and then the right-hand hallway goes down 50 feet, takes a left, and then 10 feet later, it's just an empty dead end, yep. you know? It's much easier if you narrate that out so we don't have to like play out all the nothingness of of what's actually there yep you know you just say yep it opens to a t hallway uh the uh, corridor to the right you know goes down 50 feet turns to a dead end to the left it recedes into the darkness and i i think a good trick for that type of thing if you're trying to narrate through a complicated dungeon is Use that stealth and perception and investigation or or whatever roles you're using early on to narrate that they've bypassed a trap, right? So tell them early on that you're already doing those checks on their behalf so that when you do spring a a trap on them because they rolled poorly and didn't notice it, they don't feel like, great, the first trap that was here, I didn't say I was searching for it, and therefore I sprung it. You know, they already know that traps are there. They already know their roles are being incorporated. Like, that gives them... A sense of fair play yeah and maybe the first time they notice the pressure plate trap maybe there's now a telltale sign for all the other pressure plate traps because they know what to look for right <laughs> and it's just oh great you go down the hallway you walk around three pressure plate traps yep and don't trip them right now if they're running backwards being then, chased by a dinosaur then you have to give them a roll <laughs> to be fair <laughs> you can't say you didn't remind yourselves about the pressure plate traps and you walked right into them but you don't have to say oh you know where all the pressure plate traps are you can't say all right give me dexterity saving throws to make sure you don't clamber into some right you know where they are though right <laughs> <laughs> and and gumshoe does this really well with investigation it's it's one of the coolest parts about it and that's the system that underlies knight's black agents which uh, we recently played and enjoyed uh, recently played twice um, which is that if you have the necessary skill to do the thing you want to do um, or, or, find, or investigate the thing you want to investigate you simply get all the information that exists like there's no check for it it just happens so mm-hmm. the game starts from the perspective of your investigation skill is always collaborating with the GM because all the information that you can get is in the GM's hands always yeah, and even in more traditional RPG settings, you're getting more of this kind of uh, information built into adventures. Like in Tomb of Annihilation, there are all these kinds of crazy jungle plants. But as long as you're trained in nature, you know what the names of them are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's, you know, Assassin Vine, guess what? Probably stay away from it. Right. Yeah, that's also an important thing just for world building as well is like if everyone has to roll to find out exotic details and everyone fails those lore checks, like you're just going to a nondescript dungeon at the end of the day mm-hmm. because you haven't succeeded on the checks necessary to make it more fun. Yeah. And as a GM, that's the stuff you want them to know. You really want to be handing that out as much as, as much as you can. Maybe no checks necessary. Oh, uh, you've heard right about this. So the next thing you can do uh, is to escalate through story elements. Yeah, this is actually sort of my favorite part or my favorite way to deal with people who don't want to get a move on is force them to get a move on with the story. There's some sort of timer going on. Yeah. 
Maybe that's an actual ticking timer. Maybe it's a bomb. Yeah, like the bomb goes off in 14 minutes. What do you do? Well, I'm not spending five of it investigating the stupid door. I'm blowing the door up. Right. And if they're asking for multiple checks, just remind them, yeah, you can do that. It'll take a minute. Yep. And it doesn't have to be a literal timer. It can also just be general urgency, right? So like every moment that the tome is in their hands, it increases the odds that they uncover the missing piece of the ritual. So if you don't get there as fast as possible, there's a good chance that they're going to be able to, you know, uh, bring back Tiamat <laughs> or something. <laughs> Resurrect Orcus. Yeah, or just the longer we spend inside the wizard's tower, the more likely it is he's going to notice that we're here, mm-hmm. right? Like a roving band of sentries is going to come by. A homunculus is going to spot us, something. Right. The longer we spend in, in, in the warp, the more likely we lose our minds. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially the uh, random encounters option. Although, you know, maybe don't necessarily roll random encounters, but yeah. just make it clear. You never know when bad things are going to happen. Right. Another thing you could do is to add pursuit, which is... You know, if your party is worried about what's coming up behind them, they are going to naturally be less cautious about what's in front of them. Yeah, this is, you did get spotted. Right. They know you're here. You probably want to hurry. Yep. And, you know, that pursuit can be far enough back that stealth is still important, so you're not uh, invalidating those skill sets for certain characters. Yeah, and you're not stumbling into more enemies in the front. Right. But but that urgency also gets the players anxious uh, and excited about the upbeat so that they can, you know, start moving through these things faster, um, actually lending a little more trust to you as well. You should caution. Um, this can be heavy-handed, especially if it's happening all the time. Um, it'll really screw up the pacing of your adventure because, like, sometimes you need a chance to catch a breath. You know, you need a downbeat after an exciting upbeat. Yeah, although I will say I like uh, sort of on an overarching level for the quest to have some sort of timer or like um, it, it, time is important. Time is of the essence yeah. in some way. Right. Uh, it, it lends credence to the idea that this is a living world where your enemies are doing things as well. Even if you're not. Yeah. <laughs> Even if the timeline is longer than a human life. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think the third approach that um, some games try and some GMs try that I'm a little less uh, enthusiastic about is to provide a boon or inspiration when players behave heroically or otherwise um, you know, do things that are in keeping with the tone um, rather than that sort of cautious player focused kind of play yeah you want to be careful that you're not incentivizing your players to throw all caution to the wind and like run headlong into things because they think that you know the boon or the gm is gonna save them right and you also like you're inadvertently rewarding certain types of characters right like you're rewarding foolhardy versus careful and you're rewarding uh brazen versus uh, subtle yeah now that's not to say that at particular moments in the campaign if someone like grabs the artifact and says you know what it's time for a, sac- a heroic sacrifice i throw myself into the red dragon's maw mm-hmm. awesome something cool should happen because of that yeah 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 absolutely but you just don't want that to become the default and and i think that's a a cool way to make sure that cool moments happen um, but not necessarily a great way to remove caution from the player's toolkit yeah you don't want it to get slapsticky right 
So there's one other kind of player that Sarah didn't mention that I want to talk about a bit, and this is overly cautious planners. So these are usually people who are totally fine playing in-game. You know, they're like, okay, I make one perception check, I move on. Uh, I rush the orc because I'm a melee character. But they take forever to plan ahead of time. They feel like they need to know exactly what everyone's going to do and have five different contingency plans and, like, what angle are we coming in to, to storm that castle? And then what do we do when we get inside? Oh, it can be even worse. I mean, it can be within a round of combat. You know, you want to know what everyone plans to do so that you can do the mechanically optimal mage spell to, you know, enable all of that stuff. There are always the people who are like, can we delay? Is delaying a thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> what if you do this and I do this and, and we, we all, like, ready our actions to go right after one another so we can get the, the super combo? Combo! Right. <laughs> so when you're dealing with these kinds of players, feel free to just add a real-life timer. You know, okay, you can plan as much as you want for the next 15 minutes, and then everyone, we're moving on. You're actually, like, starting the encounter. And and this is sometimes for your own sanity, but it can also be for just, like, the reality of a gaming session, right? Like, it's already 9.30 tonight. Let's get moving in this encounter, because otherwise we're not going to finish in time. Yeah, do we want anything to happen? And that's usually enough to prod people to be like, oh, oh, right, okay, sorry. I forgot. I, like, I lost track of time when we were planning. You can also just institute flashbacks. We talked a lot about this in episode one, actually, when the entire party spent two hours planning a big heist. Mm -hmm. This just gives you a chance to narrate how you've already overcome a situation that you didn't have time to necessarily plan for uh, out of character. Yeah, and in that episode, we talked about how to incorporate um, those kinds of uh, flashback tokens into a regular game, and that can help a lot of... Uh, people who feel a need to overplan, to overplan. I think it can also help players who feel much too cautious, right? Because they're, they're just worried about bad things that might happen, even if the vast majority of things that happen aren't going to be bad. Right. So it can be nice for them to have you know one or two things in their back pocket to make them feel better. And and a couple games have now like codified that just as part of their mechanics. Uh, Blades in the Dark is basically playing through a series of flashbacks mm-hmm. to find out how a heist went. Um, and Knights Black Agents has the preparedness skill, which is a general skill, which basically says, yeah, I'm an awesome super spy. Of course I had, you know, a bag full of guns. Why would I ever travel without a bag full of guns? All according to plan. Right. Yeah, I like how in Knights Black Agents, it's okay, you have, you have your kit. You have your amount, amount of things that you're going to bring with you on this job, but you don't need to pick them ahead of time. Uh, Blades in the Dark. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, you just say... I'm good at this, I'm I'm competent, and uh, this job turns out what I needed was a blunderbuss. Right. <laughs> which is why I brought it. Exactly. <laughs> I needed some coughing poison. Weird. <laughs> Spirit bane charm. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, the alternative for planning is to do that in between sessions. Um, if your group is active via email or something like that, you can get a lot of that done quickly. Or you can get a lot of that done at leisure so yeah, that not you can quickly. start quickly uh, during your actual session. Yeah, my favorite part about this is there are some players who are cautious and want to plan everything out. They can do it as much as they want via email. No one else needs to even get involved. And then Leroy Jenkins can show up and <laughs> screw it all up when you get there. That's quite possible. It's very, It's very possible. All right, so to wrap this up, Many players really hate losing their characters, so it makes a lot of sense that people will want to be really cautious in the first place. 
then as a GM, build trust with your players that you're not going to screw over their characters at every chance you get. Yeah, not out of spite. Right. Maybe just because they made the wrong decision. Or because they decided to play in a Warhammer 40k setting. <laughs> <laughs> or they played a Kender. Right. <laughs> that thing's dying immediately. You signed up for this. <laughs> you knew what you were getting into. Do you hear that, Ishan? Um, I didn't know Kenders made that sound when they splat. But it's wonderful. <laughs> let's celebrate by moving on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. Alright, so this week on the Character Creation Forge, or even in it, we've got Safety in Numbers, a build made specifically for you players out there who are terrified of bad things. Happening to you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because really, what are you actually worried about? It's, it's getting murdered in the face, right? right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's a build that will help prevent you from getting murdered in the face by bringing along a bunch of friends. (laughs) Yeah, so safety in numbers hides behind illusory allies, controls the battlefield, and keeps the party, and therefore himself, safe. All right, so Shane, what is the build? It is Trickery Domain Cleric 2, Arcane Trickster 9, War Wizard 9. I think this is the first time we've actually put trickery cleric in here and maybe arcane trickster no we've used arcane trickster but i don't think we've ever gone to nine yeah you're right it's usually three for for mage Mage hand ledger domain domain. yeah all right so from trickery cleric two levels gets us the channel divinity invoke duplicity which creates an illusion of ourselves in a square within 30 feet that you can cast through although this does require concentration so remember that um of course it's also going to get us uh some self-healing which is really nice which we can use with all of our massive number of wizard spell slots so as long as we can make it through the battle we can get ourselves back uh, in good shape and you also get some illusion spells as your domain spells so it saves you from having to prepare those as a wizard arcane trickster gets all the wonderful rogue goodies which keep you alive things like uncanny dodge evasion Cutting uh, action. Yeah, to hide as a bonus action. Just hide hide every round as a bonus action. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you get expertise. Uh, yeah, four expertises. Which you will almost certainly be using on stealth. Yeah. It also gets you the aforementioned Mage Hand Ledger Domain, which lets you use Mage Hand at range. Uh, while you're hiding. Right. Uh, and then, most importantly, the reason we're here is Magical Ambush, which means creatures have disadvantage on saving throws when you're hidden from them. So scale up that fireball to fifth level and let it rip. Bonus action hide, fireball. And then as a war wizard, uh, you'll have nine levels, which gets you fifth level spells. You'll end up with seventh level slots, but fifth level spells known. Um, And you also get the cool baby shield, arcane deflection which also works on your saves which is nice right um you get tactical wit which gives you your intelligence bonus to initiative which is handy we wanted to require you to maybe have to go for sometimes yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then uh power surge which is 
not that great of an ability, but it does let you add some extra damage, uh, and you gain charges whenever you dispel magic or use counterspell, which, of course, is how you keep the party safe, and also yourself. Just don't get caught in that. Don't don't get yourself in the dispel magic, or you're, you're going to suddenly become a lot less elusive. Yeah, because having spells up at pretty much all times is something that we're gunning for here with this build. So you're going to grab shield, of course, because you're a coward. Uh, but your bread and butter here is mirror image and blur, that wonderful combination of illusory allies. Yeah, very, very difficult to hit you, and also very tough to tell if they're even hitting you. Yeah, so mirror image uh, creates uh, additional duplicates and doesn't require concentration, while blur does and makes all of those duplicates a bit fuzzy. Right. Um, and then you'll want to load up on any type of party buff or control spells that you can, um, or just some AoE damage spells are good too, um, knowing that you can cast while hiding and impose disadvantage on the saving throw means you're going to penetrate a lot better. Yeah, keep in mind that when you're targeting spell locations, you can hide and then choose an origin point that you can see, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire area is a place where you can see. And that's totally fine. It means that uh, it's likely that your enemies still won't be able to see you. Right. Like I think, for example, you know, you hide, you duck down, you throw a hypnotic pattern in the air. Everyone still sees it. Boom. Easy pickings for the rest of the party. Right. And of course, if people do get frustrated with you, they're going to try to throw a dispel magic on you so they can actually tell where you are. Right. Uh, Counterspell it. Yep. (laughs) And then power surge. Right. So in terms of leveling order, I think I would start Rogue One, um, get to Wizard 3. That will get you... um, your second level spell so you'll have mirror image and blur available to you that's sort of the core of the build uh from there it's it's really sort of as you like it um i think i would probably go ahead and advance arcane trickster next then finish out war wizard and uh take the cleric levels wherever they make sense for the progression of your character yeah i think in this case it'll depend on how difficult the combat is like if you really need that self-healing take some cleric yeah it's also possible you start with a level of arcane or a level of rogue and then move on to fifth level of war wizard just so you can get into the second tier of power yeah if you want to start blasting right away yeah with third level spells Ooh, that's terrifying i don't know i think i might want to i want to be a little more careful just a (laughs) wizard (laughs) all right ishan who is your safety in numbers my safety numbers, um, this is a bit macabre, um, but this is the sole survivor of a large family. Damn it, you literally stole my... Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you said macabre, I knew we were going in the same direction. Dead, dead twins and triplets? Well, it doesn't... I it wasn't that specific, but yeah, it was like, you know, you were the sole survivor of a village or a family or whatever <laughs> you're haunted and don't want to be alone wait, wait, wait. okay you do that one I, I can get another one i get another one so shane okay, shane <laughs> who is your safety in numbers well Ishan, this is a bit of a guy keep it keep it this is just i got another one i got another one all right so uh yeah sole survivor of a village that was uh burned down by uh like orcs or goblinoids or or some monstrous humanoids right Uh, for some reason you were left alone um had a had a brief spark of survival and then um you you just you don't like to be alone so you created your own friends even if they're 
illusory and imaginary. That's even more macabre than the backstory. That's so depressing. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Take it, take it, paint it black. (laughs) (laughs) Here, hear me out. Okay, you think it's monstrous humanoids who killed your village, but it turns out it's people. We're the monsters. We're the monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, How about your safety in numbers? Okay, okay. My safety in numbers is a cat burglar. Okay. Uses steals um, cats. Got it. Yeah, obviously. Only prized expensive cats. Right. Um, and then sells them in Mulharond. Okay. Um, uses those great wizard utility spells um, and all of your rogue skills to be able to uh, break into places, steal important items, and get out. However, uh, my safety numbers has a reputation for being the leader of a gang of cat burglars. Turns out. It's not a gang. It's, People just see a gang. Right. It's just them working alone. Mm. Um, they'll probably use some disguise spells as well uh, so that people start identifying different members of the gang that they use as different personas uh, when they're uh, dealing with fences and contacts. So if one gets tracked down, that persona just gets burned. They move on. They quote unquote recruit a new person into the gang. I, re- I really like that with the... Um with the trickery domain mm-hmm. channel divinity like the idea that you would create like a more fully formed version that can just stay in place yeah i like that a lot uh but they also have a bunch of dead siblings right <laughs> that's where they got the idea all right before we wrap up want to take a moment and thank our patreon supporters uh, yeah your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week so if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And don't forget the Character Creation Forge Codex is available through Patreon. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. And keep an eye out for additional patron-only rewards that we're going to start rolling out on Patreon. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Uh, finally, it's here. We are talking about your RPG triumphs. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building The Poacher. Well, that's it for episode 125 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.